Are you tired of relying on landmarks, smoke signals, and pump jacks to get to location? When you do use apps such as Google Maps, Waves, or Apple, they only get you in close proximity to the well site location, but figuring out how to get to the location often comes with its own headaches of navigating lease roads. And if you're a dispatcher managing a fleet, how do you show your drivers exactly where to go to get there? Getting lost while driving to locations is a common theme in our industry. Navigating through unnamed roads can be frustrating and brutal. In our industry where time's money, getting lost is anything but efficient and acceptable. In fact, oil field workers say they spend on average over 20 minutes a day lost on lease roads, if not hours. Sound familiar? I got some game-changing news for you right here, so listen up. Wellsite Navigator is introducing the new technology you've been asking for, lease road navigation. They've already mapped over 19,000 miles of oil field lease roads that don't appear anywhere else, and every week they're adding more. Wellsite Navigator is the most trusted, most downloaded oil field mobile app of all time. Founded almost 10 years ago as the first navigation app for the oil field, they've helped more than 100,000 oil field hands find millions of well sites in 22 states quickly, safely, and reliably. Most of their users come from word of mouth, so help spread the word. They're giving all Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast listeners, their first month free when you click on the link in the show notes. Plus, when you refer a friend, they get their first month free and you get a $10 Amazon gift card. Follow the link in our show notes to get started. Make your life easier. Everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Very fired up today. We have on as our guest, Deanna Zhang of E-Tech Monkey. And uh, I'm actually glad I was able to pronounce that. because <laughs> I was like, Etch-a-Sketch Monkey? Yeah, I, yeah. I got Etch Monkey uh, a couple days ago. Oh, did you? Yeah. I like that, mm-hmm. Etch Monkey. <laughs> and I'm fired up about hearing what Etch Monkey or E-Tech Monkey is. But uh, let's do this. So I was looking up on LinkedIn at your bio. You grew up in Houston? I did. Yep. And this is why I'm bringing this up, because I kind of have an axe to grind. You went to St. John's High School? Yes. All right. Here's my St. John's story. I grew up, or my dad grew up out in Rosenberg. Mom grew up in West University. They get married. They have me. They come back to Houston they want to figure out where to live, right? And so mom wants to live in West U. Dad wants to move out to Richmond Rosenberg. So they agree that I would go interview at St. John's. And if I got in, West U. If I don't, Richmond Rosenberg. So anyway, mom gets me, gets me up that morning, go down to St. John's for an interview. Supposedly, I throw a fit. I won't get out of the car. The lady has to come interview me in the car, right? And uh, so anyway, my mom's just mortified. I'm so sorry. Can I bring him back for another interview? The lady turns to my mom and says, oh, I don't think that'll be necessary. He's very ordinary. Oh, no. I know. She said that? She did. Wow. And so dad says, Chuck brought such shame on the family. We had to move out to Richmond. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> so congratulations on getting in. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was quite a process because I, um, I did public school up until high school. And so I went through the application process in high school. 
And I remember being very nervous for the interview, but right. the lady I talked to was very nice. And well, you probably <laughs> you you probably talked to Myrtle Sims. I mean, I think Myrtle Sims was the the uh, ad- she was a longtime admissions uh, person there. Anyway, she was great. Normally, we don't talk about high schools on. Yeah, that's <laughs> on okay. Them, but I just had an axe to grind, yeah. and I wanted to make sure I threw that in. So you went to Yale. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. Why did you go to Yale? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd grown up in Houston all my life. We didn't really move around too much. Uh, we moved once within the city, but that was it. And, um, you know, I love Houston now, but at the time, I just really wanted to get out of Houston. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are a lot of things that you just don't appreciate as a kid. And... Um, and then I also, including mom and dad, I think <laughs> I've got three kids that I'm not going to get any of them to go to rice. So I, so yeah, so it was between, it was actually between rice and Yale ultimately for me. Uh, and Yale was, was also my dream school in a lot of other ways. Like I was really artsy, uh, as a high schooler and Yale had a really good art program, um, and a good science program. I was kind of your typical, like nerdy artsy kid if there's a combination of that 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 you can picture in your mind yeah no i got i mean i went to rice yeah so was like, yeah exactly so i, used I to think joke i was king of the nerds yeah. so i get it i just didn't have the artsy side yeah can't carry a tune can't play an instrument yeah i was i was visual arts um but um but yeah personally what factored into the decision was really the desire to kind of try something new and getting out of Houston and being kind of independent in another city. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great experience. I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel weird about college because, um, I was still growing up in a lot of ways. Uh, and it was, um, it was a great experience. Uh, but it, it almost, it now these days it kind of, it, it's like a blur to me. Yeah. It's almost like I went, I have, I had an amnesia throughout right. the whole thing. Like there's bits and pieces I still remember, of course, but, um, uh, it just went by so quickly. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it, they say time is supposed to move. Um, it's supposed to move quicker, right. As you get older. But, uh, I think that period in my life, I just like, I was just doing so many things that it was all a blur. <laughs> yeah. No, I think my college career was like that too, except it was alcohol. <laughs> induced. So I mean, yeah, that, yeah it that, wasn't, it wasn't for me. Like I didn't drink too much in college. It was actually at TPH when I had a lot of my first in drinking. Not okay. We're, we're going straight there. So how does, how does artsy nerd person make it into energy investment banking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely, um, uh, kind of find myself thing in freshman and sophomore year, but um, I had a, a finance organization on campus, uh, Smart Women Securities, that I just like coincidentally got involved with uh, because a lot of people I knew were in that same organization, and they kind of pitched it as like, okay, well, like in the future, whatever you're gonna do, you're gonna need to know how to like manage your portfolio. So come like take this seminar and be part of a group and. And it was a very low commitment way of like feeling like you were doing something productive with your off time out right. of classes. And, and also I was just hanging out with a lot of my friends that were also in the group. 
And so I got involved with them and that was like the inroads into kind of this world of finance. Um, and so I was still taking science classes and everything. And I actually did an internship with a, um, a, uh, biotech company, uh, after my freshman year. Uh, but I realized in that process that, um, you know, especially small companies like the, the, the biotech world was, was fraught with, um, uh, not so great business models. And, um, and, and there was just like a lot of, uh, uh, it was, things were a little bit slower in a smaller company. Yeah. So were you a biochemistry major? What, what were you majoring in that was? I was actually thinking about chemistry. And so I took, a, I took basically, if you looked at the, the pre-med course packet, I like right. took most of those classes, um, with the expectation that I would be um, doing a, uh, a chem major or a bio major and maybe working up towards medical school later on. There's like a lot of, a lot of things I was thinking about back then. Uh, but then I got involved with this finance organization and then I started to, uh, learn a little bit more about that and ended up actually just really liking it. And, um, and then I was like, you know, I think, um, science is, is really interesting, but, maybe I need to think about learning something that can also help me with on the finance side. And the natural sort of major back then and still is, is like econ right. at Yale because there's not really a finance major you can do. Um, but then there's this little department <laughs> on, um, on, on kind of the math and science hill up there on Prospect Street uh, called the statistics department. <laughs> and I got to know... The professors there really well and it was really tiny um and it was also only like 10 credits and i was like that's my major <laughs> <laughs> so statistics statistics yep so so you're in this finance club and do you do the whole thing your junior and senior year in terms of interviewing it's every bank everybody on wall street and you were going to go be an investment banker i did that yeah pretty much um all of junior year i had decided at that point um, after, um, my sophomore year, I did, um, an internship at an investment management firm in St. Louis, really random, but it was Which like one a, was that? It was Acropolis okay. Investment Management. Hmm. Um, but, uh, which was awesome. Uh, they are so nice. And I got, I had a, a an appreciation for St. Louis that I carry with me until today. There you go. <laughs> Um, that, th I will say this. I've been to St. Louis a few times, had an LP there, so I'd make the pilgrimage periodic. That arch doesn't look real. I mean, it. you stand, you know, across the street, and it looks uh, CGI-generated. Yeah, yeah. And there's also, um, they have the biggest park, I think, in the U.S., or it's it's a park that's bigger than Central Park. And I'm forgetting the name now. I think it's like Forest Park or something like that. Um but I would go there almost every day <laughs> Yeah. after work, before work. Plus, I mean, the, the, the Midwest during the summer is actually nice. I yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to be there through the winter. I mean, I guess you were up in Connecticut, which was uh, miserable in the winter, too. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, but I also was coming from Houston. So my first year, there's like snow around. The, the campus looked magical when, it, when snow had just fallen. Then everything turned, you know um, gray and slushy and, and terrible. But for the first year, I actually really enjoyed it. And then, and then I got disenchanted after that. Um, but, um, 
But, you know, St. Louis, I think, uh, I actually had my uh, very first deep dish pizza in St. Louis, and it was my favorite pizza place for a while. Oh, nice. After that, yeah, high pizza, which apparently um, President uh, Obama used to fly into the White House because it was so really? good. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The, yeah, Because, uh, I mean, he's a Chicago guy. Yeah. Was, was it part of a chain out of Chicago or was it a standalone? I think they only had locations, if I'm remembering correctly, which there's a good chance I'm not. Um, they only had locations in St. Louis and D.C. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. You're only disparaging a president of the yeah. United States <laughs> on the uh, on the global digital wildcatters <laughs> oh, network. Yeah. It's a, so you go through your you go through your interviews um, is. Tudor Pickering Holt, one of 15 offers that you had. <laughs> Were you lucky to get that one? What? And then all that, why even pick Tudor Pickering Holt, given that you were so uh, disenchanted with Houston? Yeah, I actually, so I actually interviewed for New York um, that junior summer and ended up at Barclays that junior summer. Okay. So I didn't even intern at TPH. Um, and so I kind of, I, I went with the crowd on that one, um, had, had a, had a ton of interviews with a lot of different firms, but ultimately Barclays had the largest, uh, Yale alumni contingent. So it just, it was easier to get in. And it was also, there's just a ton of support, uh, internally. Um, and then I actually ended up placing into the chemicals group for my internship. So it's going back to like my love for chemistry. And, um, and it was also, it was within the natural resources group at Barclays. So was it was that kind corporate of finance? So you, it was, you were in investment banking? Yeah, it was, it was, um, the coverage group. Okay. Over chemicals. Um, and, um, I mean, it was, it was great. Um. Well, the summer internships the best. They don't actually expect anything from you, yeah. you know? They're wooing you to come work for them after you graduate. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually like. I'm surprised the drinking didn't start there. But anyway. There was there was some, but I think I was pretty laser focused on, you know, getting an offer and being being good. <laughs> yeah, that's probably smart. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I'm actually pretty impressed with what interns do these days because my internship, half of it was shadowing. So right. I would sit behind an analyst. Um, her name was Alice. I would sit behind her on this yoga ball that she had at her desk and just watch her model, like oh, for really? hours on end. Yeah, I, I mean, because I, I don't, th and I don't think that was like a universal experience, but um, for some reason they decided that was that's what I was supposed to do. So you walked out with killer abs and an offer for a uh, full time. Right. Burning that extra three calories an hour. Perfect. <laughs> there you go. So you, so you roll into senior year, you get the offer from Barclays, various others. How do you wind up at Tudor Prickering Hall? Yeah. So I got the offer from Barclays and I was kind of looking around and then, um, I had actually, I had actually kind of, um, tried to interview for, for TPH, uh, for the summer internship. Uh, but by the time, uh, I had even contacted the recruiter and, uh, the one person I knew over there, uh, to kind of go through that process, it had already ended. What I hadn't realized was that Houston cycle is like two months earlier. 
than the New York cycle. So by the time I had started my actual interview process, like they had already gotten all their interns. Gotcha. So, um, so after Barclays, um, you know, like I think I was trying to decide if I wanted to take the offer and what they had told us is that, um, you know, it's, if you had a good experience and if the group liked you, there's a good chance you'll be back in that same group for full time, but it's not guaranteed like that following year, you're going to have to go through kind of like a placement process during your training and actually like basically recruit over again for the group that you're going to be in for the next two years. And I was like, that's kind of a raw deal, right? <laughs> Cause like, I mean, I could, I could end up in a group that's like a, you know, it's 10th on my list or something. Yeah. And I would have a totally different experience than what I was expecting. So, um, I decided then that I was going to try and recruit outwards and, um, and yeah, TPH was on the list. Uh, and at that point I was like kind of open to like being wherever I wasn't necessarily in love with New York. I'm still not necessarily in love with New York, but, um, but I was kind of like just wanting to find a good place to work. Right. Like I wanted to find a good firm and, um, and so I got back in touch with the person I knew at TPH and I got back in touch with the recruiter and it just so happened that they had a space available and were recruiting full time. Um, and so it just kind of worked out. Like I liked everyone I interviewed with and they liked me. And, and so I went for it in the end. Yeah. Now I'll give the guys credit over at TPH in terms of just the culture and all the folks I dealt with. I mean, no better person on the planet than Maynard Holt. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I always I always say this in the nicest way possible, but he is the least banker banker I've yeah. ever met. You <laughs> oh, know? That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So when you came in there, you came into corporate finance or investment banking. Were you an energy tech person then or were you doing oil and gas? Tell me how you wandered into energy technology. Yeah, no, I mean, no, definitely not specialized at that point. You come in as a generalist in the group. And um, at the time, so this was 2015, um, oil had just gone to the pits. <laughs> yeah. um, you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, I'm frying a turkey. And I'm literally looking down at my cell phone, watching the whatever twelve, thirteen, fifteen dollar drop in oil, and I almost dropped my phone into the <laughs> yeah, into the like, turkey fryer. <laughs> like whatever, this is over. Yeah, I'm gonna enjoy Thanksgiving now. Yeah, that was not pleasant. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So it's like a really weird time to come into uh, the group because deal flow had kind of slowed down a lot, and the firm was also thinking about pivoting. Or at least expanding products because it was very M&A focused before, very much focused on um, just like uh, corporate finance uh, and or just like buying and selling different asset packages. Um, and now there was just a lot of balance sheet work to be done, a lot no. of restructuring work. And we didn't, uh, TPH didn't have that uh, expertise at the time. So we were building it up. And so it was just... Yeah. Anyway, I, I worked on a lot of um, Delaware deals. I was at one point in kind of the small restructuring group <laughs> um, and uh, and and just did a kind of your usual 
like pitching and, and banking work around upstream, midstream, and, and OFS. Yeah, the thing that always got me about the bankruptcy situations is it literally seems like everybody in there fights over a penny. And it's just hours and hours of arguing about a penny. And I guess it is a fixed pie where, you know, I was always a growth equity guy. So, well, let's just make the pie bigger and everybody wins. And so I get that. But I, I don't think I could have done that. I think, yeah, I was, um, it was interesting. It was, it was really interesting because oftentimes you'd be on the calls and the other side, it's like not ever any call that you would encounter kind of in, in just M&A or, or, um, or capital raising. Cause it would be, the other side would be these like creditors, right. And they would be angry. <laughs> yeah. They would be so angry. They'd be swearing. They would, it would just be like crazy, like right. raucous. And, um, and so as an analyst where you don't have to like really deal with any social interaction or being active on the call at all, just sitting there and listening to that was kind of just entertaining. <laughs> I was in, I was involved in one of those kind of calls because we at Kane were arguably going to come in and put some equity in, but we wanted to, our, our kind of thing was you guys figure out your deal and then we'll propose the deal to you, but we can't propose a deal to you if you guys are fighting and who has what and all. So you need to, to do that first. And we got a call and they started screaming at me. And I like, hey, I get that somebody did you wrong. I know for a fact it was not me. Yeah. I had nothing to do with this. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're just angry people. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know what type of personality you have to be to kind of be like in restructuring forever. Like a lot oh. of bankers do really well at that. But you kind of have to just be okay, I think, getting yelled at and be like even keeled and able to have like a thick skin maybe. You know, I just kind of thought, do you become that person because you're in restructuring oh, yeah. <laughs> or if you're that person, you're drawn to restructuring? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know? you just lose your emotions over time. <laughs> exactly. Just beat it out of you and, uh, and all that. So, so you did restructuring. When did you get into energy technology? Kind of about what year? Because where I'm going with this question is, was it cool at that point or was it still kind of the, well, we got to have an energy tech person somewhere, but you know, stay out of the way. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so I did one more pivot before that. So I, um, I switched over from banking to research and actually covered, uh, midstream and infrastructure equities for a while. And that was because I, I just wanted the experience of being public facing to see if that's kind of where I wanted to be in versus kind of on the more transaction side. And then it was at that point that they started that Maynard and, um, and, and the team started the energy tech group on the banking side. He had just met and hired John Gibson, which is a, a story in itself. Right. <laughs> um, but he hired John on the banking side and he needed somebody on the research side to be start, to start writing energy tech research. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a small team. You know, the research team, I don't know, is like 15 people. So who's the research team when you're there? Dan's already moved over to money, uh, to manage money? Yeah, so Dan wasn't part of it, although we still had his, like, original 
like checklist for the morning note. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that was sent around and, and everything. So he was just kind of the the legend that just left. Um, and um, so is Dave Purcell. Purcell around? was there. Okay. Yeah. Portillo was there. So I was part of infrastructure. So um, it was uh, Colton was Colton Bean was the one that I, I worked with the most. Gotcha. And was Mark Meyer there? Mark was the head. Yeah, at the time. I'm on a run of uh, Tudor Pickering Holt alums on the uh, podcast because I've had Brad Olson and Mark Meyer and now, yeah. now, now you on. So we're everywhere. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I have Bobby Maynard and Dan talked into coming on the podcast and talking about the founding of the firm. Oh, awesome! Yeah, which would be uh, which would be a uh, neat to do. So hopefully, I can corral them and get them to do it. So. We had John Gibson come talk at a Kane CEO retreat, and he's hysterical. He got up there, and he was just telling stories, and he told the story about going to the Tesla annual meeting. And he said he – because he said he went and bought one share, so that way he could go to the annual meeting. He said it was crazy. Elon Musk is up there just going, we're going to build a gigafactory here and a gigafactory there. And John was counting it up, and it was something like you know two and a half trillion dollars worth of capex that Elon Musk announced. And he goes, "I've been to a lot of annual meetings. I've never seen anyone mm-hmm. propose two dollars of capex unless they had a line of sight to actually raising the money." So yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. crazy. Yeah, no, John is uh, he was amazing to work with. Is that it would be like stories every day. Yeah, like you would go into his office, and you would just just want to ask him a question about like, oh, is this meeting at 11 with somebody you know or whatever? And he would sit you down and then it would it would turn into a two-hour conversation. It wasn't very good for productivity sometimes. Right. <laughs> Education-wise, I would think it'd Oh my be gosh, great. it was amazing. Yeah, I learned, I learned so much from him. Um, and also how to deal with people because I think what was appreciated about John was that uh, no matter – where he was or, you know, what he had going on during the day. If he scheduled something with you, he gave you all of his time and all of his attention. Right. And, um, and then also like, he was also just like force of personality. Like he would come into a room and like immediately be kind of like, you know, just the person that people look to, to speak. Like, and that was, I haven't encountered uh, that many people that, that can do that. I mean, as charismatic as they come yeah, and funny, I've actually yeah. heard he's done stand up comedy before. He, he has. Yeah. And was actually good at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, he was a com. he's been a comic. He's, he's a, uh, a veteran. He's, um, he was a suicide hotline operator at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't it, know that. Yeah. Ran landmark graphics, did really yeah, well. I forget who yeah. they, they sold to. And as I recall with John's hiring, I didn't know you then, but as I recall, that seemed pretty progressive of Tudor Pickering Holt in terms of being out in front of stuff because you really didn't have energy technology groups in any of the uh, other banks, it seemed yeah. like. Yeah. Um, yeah, at the time there wasn't really – dedicated energy tech practices. Um, you could say, um, there was like many efforts within the services group of a lot of banks. 
uh, but not really a dedicated practice. And John too is John. It's like not that your typical banker hire, right? He's like he's an industry dude. He's also just you know crazy personality and um, really like a a true like technical genius too. Um, and and so just the hiring of John itself was was kind of a radical move, and then establishing a group around John was another radical move. But yeah, at the time there there wasn't anybody talking about kind of digitalization um, around at least the banking side of things. Like there were some rumblings, obviously, on the operators and um, and you were just starting to get kind of that that momentum, that conversation around, you know, what can we do better on implementing technology, like innovating more and digitalizing digitalizing more of our operations. Um, but the bankers weren't really paying attention because there just wasn't really deal work around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's changed a lot since then. But um, at the time I was, you know, just like writing research about it. So. And who are you covering at that point? Yeah, it was. Or just, was it thematic? It was, it was thematic. Um, and I, I mean, who was doing the digital transformation in the space? It was like mostly startups. And, and so I would, you know, the morning note would be like all this equity uh, chatter. And then at the bottom, it would be like the, the e-tech blurb for Tuesday. And it'd be me writing about like, you know, I covered Data Gumbo at one point, you know, Tachius, um, Well Data Labs, like Novi. <laughs> Just all the ones that, you know, um, that, that at the time, uh, you know, they were just like raising their series A at the most, like they were all like pretty young at that point. Um, and they were just so happy somebody was talking about them and giving them free publicity. (laughs) And you're like writing it, all these great trends, all this stuff's happening. But by the way, you can't play it unless you're doing private security. Sorry about that. Yeah. It was kind of an odd thing to put in the morning note because like mostly these like public guys that would read it. Um, but, um, but then, you know, the morning note has has kind of like disseminated into, you know, everybody's inbox, like corporate and private investor. So I, um, I, I, I think I, I like to think I helped some of the startups I wrote about get some exposure to, to people that actually mattered in their universe. (laughs) Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a little bit odd to have it in the morning note. And that was in part, you know, that, and then also my desire to kind of work on it full time. That was what uh, led me to transfer back into banking to kind of work on energy tech fully instead of kind of half infrastructure, half um, energy tech. So you moved back to, to corporate finance or investment banking and Give me a sense during that kind of first year you're back in banking, what, what sort of deals did you work on? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, that first year it was, uh, the deals that a lot of deals that, that John had brought in. Um, so let's see, there was, um, a geophysical software company that we were looking into, uh, selling, um, at least a portion of their interest. There was um, a subsurface monitoring company that we were working for to sell to sell them. 
it was actually like a lot of the the work was in combination with uh the OFS group and um and some of the companies they've come across in their universe um and then it kind of evolved from there like then so like what started, year is this Tell this is um 2018 was when i so this started. is 2018 is there any mention of carbon in any discussion you're having this is just this is just we're not going to do buyout and oil field service we're actually going to create some new technology because yeah, we're no. 10 years behind the rest of the world in terms of using computers and the internet and right, stuff right, like right. that. Yeah, no, it, 2018, there wasn't any real mention of carbon. I would say, like, the one thing I would say to that is, like, John did come, John and Gary both. So Gary uh, Morris uh, joined uh, the group not long after John uh, did. And um, he's also, like, ex uh corporate guy was at Halliburton for a while. He was the CFO of Halliburton when Dick Cheney was the CEO um, and did a lot of tech things afterwards. But both he and John like have always had an interest in kind of this, this hard tech. And so I think for our 2018 conference, our disruption conference, we had some of those technologies in there, but all the deal work we were doing were de was definitely all like technology facing oil and gas. Um, and, um, and then, you know, that following year, 2019, all of a sudden, like, you know, CCUS started coming up more and more. And I remember there's like one article that John wrote about how the industry needs to pivot from being a, an oil and gas industry to being like an atmospheric monitoring and carbon monitoring industry. And that was like, it was it was kind of a revolutionary thought at the time because it was nobody nobody was really thinking about it at all um and and i remember he was talking about how he got some comments on that article <laughs> that weren't so positive after it came out um from maynard and bobby and, <laughs> and chad and everybody you know, internally maynard loved it maynard's always loved it um you know like when hydrogen became a topic he was like one of the first ones to jump on that too, like to make sure that we were spending time on it. Um, so yeah, 2019 was kind of a, a little bit of a, a, the year that things started changing. Um, it felt, you know, so in private equity world, we raised Kane Anderson Energy Fund uh, 7 in 2016. And that was the largest private equity fund ever raised in Kane history. It was just over $2 billion. It was way oversubscribed. We, six months later, sold Silver Hill for $2.5 billion, front page of the Wall Street Journal and all. That really felt like peak shale. Peak, yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that felt like, now, particularly in hindsight, and then... The the interesting thing about Energy Fund 7 is we literally had line of sight to where 80% of the money was going to go. And so, you know, six, nine months later after we're done, we started calling LPs and said, hey, I know this is crazy, but we're 80% invested. We're starting to think about Energy Fund 8. Just want to give you a heads up. And we started raising that in June of 18. 
And I'm not saying that people hated oil and gas at that point, but it felt a lot different, different. walking mm. into uh, to people's offices there. And so we raised, I, th I think we had our first close in, in, in June of 18 and had our final close and call it the spring of, of 19. And we raised half the amount of money we did for seven. I mean, that really was kind of the time where I felt felt the the green movement had taken a hold. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it it you could you could start to sense that there's something different in 2019. And then when COVID rolled around in 2020, that's when that's when it was like there was it was the topic, right? Then everything everything started shifting much more dramatically. And all the clients, all the corporates, all of the investors that we were talking to were all of a sudden just laser focused on clean tech, climate tech. I don't think climate tech was even a term back then, but clean tech and like um, alternative energy and like emissions all of a sudden became a topic. Um, Do you know what a catalyst for that might've been? It, in my mind, looking back, you can kind of say, well, you know, in the early 2000s and we start drilling horizontal and big fracks for natural gas, we didn't really publish what was in frac fluid because we made it a big secret because everybody had a proprietary mix. Mm -hmm. And it felt like there was a little bit of an advantage towards the environmentalist movement because they were able to use that. Those guys won't even tell us what's in it. It's mm -hmm. getting in the groundwater. And you had uh, Al Gore's movie come out at some point, and then you had Gasland come out. But it always kind of felt like that was on the periphery until, like we were talking about, you know, kind of 2018, 2019, and it just seemed to hit. Was there was there an event, or was that just I was blissfully ignorant in oil and gas land, and all of a sudden <laughs> I woke up? I I don't think there's any one catalyst. I think it was several things. I think um, when oil went negative, it wasn't a good look, right, <laughs> <laughs> in general for the investment world. Um, there's also, like, I think um, up until that point, there had been a lot of fun flow out of oil and gas already. And then when COVID hit, all of a sudden it was like, well, nobody's investing in yeah. anything traditional. Um, there was also this kind of, really a stark realization that life can be disrupted, but yet it goes on kind of thing, you know, like, um, like I think with COVID, like everything was just all of a sudden disrupted. Everybody had to force themselves to like not do the things that they had done before, um, like both in personal life and then also in business. And I think that just led to a lot of people making change, just generally speaking. So I think it was like kind of a mentality shift a little bit. Um, and then also the whole, you know, SPAC movement helped that, <laughs> helped the um, the investing side a lot because the private markets at that point had dried up. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these companies that were expecting to raise capital in 2020 really weren't able to access that capital in the public, mar in the uh, private markets. And so when SPAC vehicles came out and there, there was like appetite from the pub markets to kind of take on um, SPAC vehicle and whatever they were looking at, all of a sudden that became an avenue, I think. And then the really 
you know, the, it wasn't just climate tech or clean tech investments, but that very much was something that the retail investors and the, pub, the public markets loved. And so that I think really, really helped boost up the profile for a lot of these companies because all of a sudden, you know, now that at that point we had a bunch of these, these EV specs happening, all of a sudden, like, you know, banks were taking note, private equity investors were taking note, infra investors were taking note. And so you had the whole capital universe kind of pivoting to like try and insert themselves into this movement somehow. Yeah. So and and what was interesting about it is, um, and maybe maybe this was part of it is, public investors did seem more sensitive to what I'll call climate type issues earlier than private investors did. Um, you had fidelity in, I want to say, maybe as early as kind of two thousand eight. 2010, they started asking companies, all right, how much gas are you flaring? And questions mm -hmm. and questions like that. And so the the public side of it became sensitive. And maybe that's because the public side of it is more in tune and with the general population than maybe private uh investors are. And so because I do think one of the things that happened in SPAC world was there became a clear line drawn that if you are furthering the development or the life of hydrocarbons, we're not going to de-spack you. We're not mm -hmm. going to invest in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way because the SPACs pop up. They're willing to invest in EVs, climate tech, all that sort of stuff. In effect, play venture capital for it. Uh, it may have even made our oil and gas capital issue worse because, okay, we have a place we can go play now. Right. We don't have to play in oil and gas anymore. Right. There wasn't, yeah. I mean, I think um, there's just, uh, there was just such a, um, an easy economic pathway um, on the SPAC side. If you, IPO to SPAC, it would cost you like what, $8 million maybe. Right. You can make 20 times that easily yeah. with your investment. Right. And so it was just, there was just such clear line of sight to making money <laughs> in that <laughs> route. And, um, and then, you know, there was this thought that like, okay, so if I find a company that's pre SPAC and I invest in them, then that's another way I can, you know, potentially um, create this growth portfolio. Uh, and so there's a lot more interest in the companies that were, you know, that would be a SPAC candidate one year or two years down the line too. So it kind of trickled down. Yeah. There. No, it was a, it was a wild thing. And, you know, I actually heard the justification for it and I'll make these numbers up and you probably know the right ones, but call it pre-economic collapse of, you know, 07, 08, right around there. There were call it eight thousand publicly traded companies, and by the time we got to to two thousand eighteen nineteen somewhere in there, there were forty five hundred publicly traded companies. So there actually was a demand from the fidelities, et cetera, of the world of we need more product. And the other interesting things, uh, and obviously COVID caused 
the M&A market and the private market to dry dry up. So you had obvious targets that needed capital, needed liquidity, whatever the case. The other interesting thing I heard about this that I didn't fully appreciate because everybody says, oh, the SPACs have done horribly. You pull up the list mm -hmm. and they've all lost money. I have heard, though, that if you view it as a venture capital portfolio, we're going to have a lot of losses, but we're going to have our periodic home run that's going to pay for everything else. If you total all of that up, the SPACs have actually performed. But it's one it's one home run carrying nine losses. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, yeah. and like most things I do, I just espouse it and don't actually run any math <laughs> or, or dig into it. But, I uh, believe it. I believe it. I, I mean, I think um, the SPACs have done for uh, climate tech and clean tech and energy tech, whatever you want to call it, have done for this space what a little bit what the dot-com boom did for tech, which was it has subsidized a lot of tech development and has put funding in places where there wouldn't have been funding in a normal cycle. So, um, you know, I think from that perspective, it, it was almost necessary um, for us to kind of go through that. Um, going through that, I guess, it's still going on. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, it's, it's something that I think we'll, we'll need to see actually more of, just that kind of mindset of like, you know, we're, I kind of, we're, we're kind of in this place right now where we have 20 years, right, to 30 years to reach our, our net zero goals. And if we rely on kind of the traditional funding ecosystem, um, I just don't think there's enough urgency to get there. There's, you know, it's almost like if you're, um, you're, you're playing basketball and you're trying to shoot a hoop, but make it every single time, you're not going to shoot as many, you know, shots. Right. right. And, uh, and maybe you'll make it every time, but you won't score as many points. Whereas like, you know, those games that they have in kind of your, you know, your bar where it's like, you know, you shoot as many right. balls as you can and you just try to rack up the score as much as you can. I think that's kind of where we are in, um, in, in kind of, uh, achieving net zero it's like, it doesn't matter how many shots we take. The end goal is like how, how many points we get. Right. Right. So we have to be taking as many shots as we can. So I think we'll need to see more of those vehicles. come. So out. this is, so back in the day, um, the Rockets had periodic runs where they were just really bad back in the 80s. So they'd, they'd have the worst they had the worst record in the league two years in a row and led to Akeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson uh, getting drafted. But there was a player in the NBA called Lloyd, named Lloyd Free. He changed his name to World B Free. And World B Free's deal was he signed with the worst team in the league every year because he just liked to shoot. <laughs> so he would he would – he would want to average 35 points and go 12 and 70 during the season wow. as opposed to be on a winner and maybe score 12 points. And so anyway, he was with the Rockets and um, one of the sportscasters was being a little snarky interviewing him and said, you know, world, how do you know you're in range for your shot? And his response was when my Mercedes Benz pulls into the parking lot. <laughs> 
I know it's time for me to start <laughs> shooting. So, so we need more world bee freeze. Right. And the, I hadn't thought of this. I'm glad you brought this up because I lived through the dot-com bubble back when I was at Stevens because oil and gas was at – oil was at $12 a barrel. So I ran around and Googled – I didn't even Google. I probably Yahooed or – because Google wasn't even around Alta Bing, Vistas yeah. or Ask Jeeves or yeah, yeah. whatever it was. I tried to find every company that was internet or dot-com related that had something to do with a hydrocarbon. And I would go call on those folks. Stevens had a really good internet analyst, Brad Eichler. And so I was doing that for a few years through the dot-com bubble. So I had experience with it. And the thing I noticed is you had a massive amount of capital come in. You had massive, massive value destruction, but at the end, at the end of the day, if you looked at the business metrics, the number of web pages was doubling every six months. The number of people on the internet were were doubling. Costs were coming down as you know you had better mm-hmm. transportation and like, and so the 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 destruction of value did not mean that the dot com phenomenon wasn't going to be come part of our daily lives and it's almost that's what you're saying on energy tech i mean we may lose a lot of money in this whole bubble and all but at the end of the day to get to where we are striving to be in 30 years yeah we're gonna have to do that now do you actually think we can get to net zero in 30 years um i think you're talking about as and this by the way is going to be on the web for the rest of time. <laughs> your children, your great-grandchildren, right, right, right. all are going to be able to see this. Right, right, right. Um, uh, no, I think um, I think as uh, as an industry, I think we can get to net zero by 2050. I think it'll take carbon offsets, a lot of carbon offsets, a ton of unrelated carbon offset projects. Uh, but I think we can get there. Um, I think, uh, so I think there's sort of a definition issue too. When you're talking about scope one and two, that's very achievable in my mind. Like, I think those are smaller numbers and we're already making the operational improvements. And we also have, I think by 2050, enough carbon offsets to be able to get to net zero on those, those two scopes. Scope three is a little bit different. Scope three is huge for industry. And I am actually not sure if there's enough carbon offset projects um, out there and that potentially could be uh, implemented by 2050 to cover all of the the offsets that are needed for scope three. Now, in your view of that world, does energy become so expensive that literally we're talking about cutting back standard of living. Um, maybe Africa doesn't get the energy it desires, et cetera. Um, does that question make sense? I mean, yeah, if, if, we're gonna about hit, if we're going to sacrifice humans prosperity right. in, in our to quest. Be able, to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Like I'm optimistic about that. I think, um, I think one, it's, I think everybody's kind of on the same page that there's no blatant sacrifice of prosperity that makes sense in this sort of like goal to reach 
net zero, you know, decades away. Um, so I don't think those those decisions will be uh, will be, you know, made um, with kind of the blaséness that everybody thinks they'll be made. Um, I do think that new technology will pop up on the combustion side that may be able to solve our problems without having to sacrifice kind of all of existing infrastructure. So you talk about scope three emissions, you know, most of it from for oil and gas right now is combustion of fossil fuels. Right. And I don't think it's that much of a stretch to believe that by 2050 we'll have a technology in which I think it's it already exists at a larger scale today, but at a modular level to be able to combust oil and gas cleanly without any emissions into into the air. And then all of a sudden our scope three emissions are pretty much gone at that point, right? If that gets the scale. You know, so. I had Dan Pickering on the podcast last summer and we talked a similar sort of issue. And I think that's where Dan and I both shook out that at the end of the day, it's got to be, and I'm going to use this term wrong, but, you know, carbon capture of some sort um, that's going to be able to get us there. And it's, it's, it's a technology that maybe is bouncing around in a lab right now, but uh, I haven't read about it yet. Yeah. And, and I, you know, a lot of what we focus on as an industry the oil and gas industry focuses on is um, the sort of industrial side of carbon capture. So, you know, how do we apply it to your your ethanol or your ammonia, ammonia facilities or your power gen facilities? And, and we don't really talk about the consumer side of things, which is really what's driving our scope three. So I think I think we just need to do more research on that <laughs> and be more involved in that conversation because it's something that I I definitely want to do too is just get more up to speed on what optionality there is on that side of things. Like it's out there. I've I've seen articles that talk about how researchers in so-and-so lab have developed um, a zero emissions engine that uses nat gas. Um, and, and, you know, I, try to look for updates, but no, none come. Cause I, I'm, I just don't think there's enough attention paid to those types of developments. Cause that, that could just be an instantaneous game changer for the prospecting and the for forecasting for this industry and change everyone's opinion on, you know, what the growth trajectory is for, for this industry. Yeah. Cause, um, I think what's lost on a lot of this is we talk about how we're going through an energy transition and all that. And I mean, 25 years ago, we got what 79.4% of our uh, energy from burning hydrocarbons. And today it's 80.2. <laughs> so we, yeah. we haven't transitioned. Yeah. <laughs> we've just, we've just needed more. And um, this is the thing that, that gets me is I've become a big Bitcoin believer. I mean, I truly think that's the, the much better store of value than gold. Uh, my running joke is always, what does gold have besides being limited? And it looked marginally attractive on the queen's neck. Right? <laughs> outside of that, you know, you just didn't have much. So I've become a, uh, become a believer in that, which is just tons more energy. The metaverse, Colin and I were talking about this on the BDE show last week. 
if the metaverse actually happens and we're running around with oculars on, that's a ton of energy mm-hmm. that's going to be needed to to do this. Colin brought up something I didn't even know, the Xbox network of these guys and gals playing games every night. It's just tons of energy. It is. So, I mean, we're going to need every single source of power that fuel source to grow if we just want to meet that demand to keep our standard of living flat, much less try to increase it. Yeah, maybe. I think on a global level, yes. On the U.S., I'm actually not not quite sure because you're talking about these developments, like obviously Bitcoin mining um, isn't necessarily a replacement for anything, but the metaverse would be kind of a replacement for us going out and meeting in person with each other, right? So there would be kind of a a reduction in emissions from Colin and I kind of talked about that and we didn't get into it as deep as, as you and I are talking about it right now, but we were thinking that it was actually going to be supplemental that maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe the metaverse is not replacing your, you know, once a year ski trip, your once a year trip to the beach and all, but maybe it's replacing watching reruns of the office right on a on night and so that it it potentially is supplemental in nature as opposed to to replacing and so it just means more energy yeah that's true i guess you're not going out for groceries on the metaverse and that's replace in having magically bringing groceries in from from the metaverse into your home so you still have to do kind of um your basic day-to-day things I mean, Colin talks about he because he what's it called an ocular? Yeah, yeah. An Colin Oculus, got an yeah. Oculus for uh, one of his kiddos. He was sitting there playing ping pong with a friend. Yeah, and I mean, you know, he's like twenty five minutes later, he's sweating because he's yeah, bouncing yeah. around. And he says it's gotten that real. And uh, I was sitting there telling Colin, I go, I don't know what you're talking about. I I messed around with VR with one of my kids. Well, that was five years ago. Yeah, I bet it's gotten a little better. Yeah, yeah. Since then, yeah. So this this is what I find really interesting is, so you're in the middle of energy transition, you're at Tudor Pickering Holt, this great firm doing all this, and you decide, nah, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I quit. I, I was part of their great uh, resignation, I guess. The great resignation. Yeah. Oh, there, were, there were a lot of resignations? Well, the, generally speaking, I think uh, there's been just a lot of resignations across just the world across right. every single industry. And I think, um, I think it's, it's, and I, I'm not too well read on it, but I think it's because so many people have like taken a look at what their life was like before COVID, taken a look at their, what their life was like after COVID and have found that there might be, you know, kind of a, a better option out there. So they've, it just made people relook at, um, at, at what they want to do. And that definitely happened to me. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I, I was, um, I, I, you know, I've been in energy tech for a couple of years now, completely dedicated, which has been amazing. Like there really hasn't been another firm that, that, that could have offered me that option. Um, and, and I've done well in it. And I've met a lot of great people, but kind of in that process, I realized that I, there's just not enough bandwidth (laughs) to do what I want to do. And I also 
Um, I also was just getting behind in everything, if that makes sense. So, yeah, no, I think the because, you know, you hear the battle about Republicans saying, oh, if we're going to continue to pay people, they're not going to work and all that. I think that's way oversimplifying and totally misses the point you just made in terms of a reexamination of life and all that. I mean, look at me. I, mean, <laughs> I ain't gone back to work. And uh, I uh, told my parents the other day, I was like, man, I moved back in with y'all before I get another job because working sucks. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, no, I, t- I, totally, I totally see that. So what are, what are you doing with that? that yeah. Is that E-Tech Monkey? Yeah, so I started this blog called E-Tech Monkey. Um, and it's really kind of a journal and a documentation of whatever I'm going to be doing <laughs> this year. Um, but my goal is it, it's, it's a couple different things. Like one, I realized I was behind in everything. And so I just need to get caught up on a lot of reading. I need to, you know, be thinking about a lot of things, um, and, and charting things out and just, just spending time sitting in my room and just solely focused on figuring things out for a while, like figuring things out around, um, around, you know, the macro picture of climate tech and energy tech, figuring things out on where I want to play in it, figuring things on, on like what the problems are. Um, and that kind of leads into kind of my second goal, which is my theory is that the funding ecosystem for energy tech and for climate tech is broken and that there are issues with it, that it could be done better. And part of it is what we just talked about, which is there's a a lot more shots on goal that need to be taken in order for us to be able to fund the technologies that we need to be funding and to get to where we need to be in 30 years. And, And in order to do that, we can't just take the venture capital model from other industries and copy paste it into, into this one. And so what are the problems with the funding ecosystem, validating what those problems are, and then figuring out if there's a solution that pop, that evolves or pops out of this sort of analysis that makes sense to build. So that's kind of my, my, uh, my second goal is to kind of go through that journey. Um, so dummy, dummy this down for me because, uh, one, I'm not very smart, but two, just Give me an example of something that you've thought, ah, maybe we could do it different this way. Kind of give me a tangible example of just kind of what you, what you've been thinking about. Well, it's like, um, it's like with, um, raising money for, uh, for hard tech is, is really difficult and raising money for, Raising money for any startup is a, is a process in itself, right? Because you have to go out and talk to thousands of investors potentially in your entire the entire lifespan of your company, but at least for that one round, hundreds for sure. Right. Um, and you need to convince them of the story, and you need to you need to also like find a match in 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 the other side in in the investors that you're talking to, and you also need to be running your business and getting your pitch deck together and doing all the things that, um, you know, to run a normal business, you need to be doing on the side. Um, so raising money as a startup is hard in itself. If you're in kind of like a very niche area, like 
a lot of these climate tech and energy tech companies are, where you're solving a very specific problem, um, it's hard to figure out what universe of, of investors to go after. Right. It's, you know, it, 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 it's almost impossible to figure out if there's like one cohesive group to go after because there's just so many things changing about the investor universe too, so many new entrants. And everybody wants to look at everything, right? So you end up having to go out, compared to kind of your average startup, go out to many more investors. So not just hundreds, but like a thousand, you know, 2,000 different investors um, and getting to know all of them. And so there's that issue. Um, and then uh, there's sort of the issue of um, who you know, right? Because it's in, in, in VC and in, in, in this kind of universe of earlier stage companies, it's very much about um, who you know, what they think of you, and who can they recommend, right, on your behalf. And um, in, in, in this world, if you're, if you're coming in and you're just starting a climate tech startup and you were previously in oil and gas or you're previously in, like, in tech, you may not have the necessary context to be able to go out to the the VC universe and raise that money. And so all of a sudden you're cold calling everybody and you're cold calling 2000 people. Right. right. So, um, so those are some of the problems I see. Um, there's also like not very much standardization of, of between the different subsectors. Uh, so like a hydrogen startup is being looked at the same way as a CCUS startup is being looked at the same way as like your, um, like a solar developer, like every, you know, it's, it's, it's like, these are totally different industries, but they're kind of all being lumped together and there's no like framework for how you look at each one of these, uh, areas. Um, and, and so all of this, I think creates this problem of like when you have funding going, going to the hot startups. So like the ones that have been able to like get you know, kind of a critical mass of exposure and investors already looking at them, a lot of people just pile on behind them. And so you have a lot of funding being thrown at very small tip of kind of the pyramid. And then you have all these other startups whose technology should be like developing and should be moving quicker towards um, commercialization that can't get the funding because they just don't know where to start in, in this sort of process. So I think those are a lot of the the issues that I can like we came across those a lot in in working for uh, different companies in the last few years. Like um, there's there's one company that um, kind of produced a a component that fed into renewable energy, and it was a it was a better component, um, and it was it was honestly a technology breakthrough what they were doing and because they brought the cost curve down so much that it was enabling a lot of other different developments around the, the, um, end product. Um, and I think we ended up calling like, like 300, 400 people, um, and sending emails out to more. <laughs> right. So I, and, and that's for a banking process. That was, that's a huge process. And so I realized that was like very inefficient and there was an issue. There's a problem in the fact that they like were coming to us. They were looking for help. So there was a problem in them getting funding. 
And then there was another problem in um, us running the process. Like, cause, because we, uh, we realized in that process that there was, that there was just so many people that could be interested in them. But then there was also so many people that were definitely not, right? And so just figuring all of that out was just, it was, it, it was just super complex, not something that should be done manually, but it is in, in kind of the service world. Yeah. And uh, sitting there thinking through it, I mean, the way we did situations like that way back in the day is you got an assignment, you called and you tried your, your best to just keep notes yeah. of what people wanted. Yeah. And then the second assignment you got, you hoped you didn't have to call 300. You hoped you only had to call 290 right. and, you know, and, uh, and you kept winnowing it down. No, it is, it is a really big problem because the disparate nature of potentially the stakeholders in this, you have everything from government to just people that want to make money to people that want to make money responsibly as investing to strategic partners all along the the chain. I mean, pulling all that together, you're right. It's going to, going to be a mess. Right. And they all have different risk appetites, right? Like I think, um, there's a ton of capital raised right now at the kind of private equity um, and up level where it's like private equity infrastructure, like the look, the, the, the uh, sort of like um, 20%, 25% and below type of returns, that conservative risk appetite level. And then there's, there's, you know, the whole venture universe, which is aiming at like 30% and above types of returns. Um, but most of the money that they have, uh, that they, um, that they raise are aimed at like kind of these seed investments, seed and series A, that's like most of the venture universe. So then you've got these like kind of maybe late series A, series B, series C types of companies that just don't know where to go. There's like not really a clear like entity or universe to go after that's as big as like the venture community or like all of this infrastructure and private equity capital that's been raised. And so what you find is like that these private equity firms and infrastructure capital that don't have enough projects to be putting their capital into are now looking at the series B and C types of investments and kind of moving their risk appetite up and their investment sizes down. So I think I think there's some way you can play that because right now it's just like, it's all very confusing. Like there's so many investors that I talk to, they're like, yeah, we'll make an exception for this one. We're not sure if we'll do that going forward. Or like, you know, we're, we want, you know, we want to be making like lower tech risk types of investments because we just don't have the expertise in this area. There's a way to like gain that expertise. There's a way to like marry different risk profiles together, like, you know, finance and insurance and all these other instruments do it all the time. It's a, it, there just needs to be like just better thinking and more innovation around and more creativity around how you do it. And so, I mean, we're what week three into the blog, yeah. but, <laughs> but I mean, is the thought is you're going to be publishing content you yeah. know, here's what I thought of today. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I, I, uh, I, I'm trying to keep it like, uh, just kind of open. Like I don't want to be committed necessarily to one type of content. 
um, or just like one theme uh, of content. I think this very much is a discovery process for me. So um, I'll be publishing kind of like whatever I want to publish, but it'll be along, it would be on the vein, the general vein of what did I learn today? And here's what I want to learn tomorrow. Um, and then also here's who I talked to and here's what I learned from that. Um, so I'll be doing that regularly. I'll also, I don't know. I, uh, I just, I, I, I would like for there to be feedback on the blog. Like I want to publish something like horrendously stupid and have people sell, tell me that it's horrendously stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, I want that kind of dialogue. I will just say, be careful what you wish for <laughs> as a podcaster who every once in a while is known to read his Apple or Spotify reviews. Just be careful. Okay. <laughs> it, can, it can be a little tough on the, uh, the ego. Yeah. I will admit that I'm shallow enough that I need everybody to like me. <laughs> and so, but it's cool you're doing it because Colin always says this, and I have become a big believer that literally the creation of content is the greatest source of leverage you have today in terms of drawing inbounds and, to your point, maybe creating community. Because it sounds like at the end of the day, you're trying to create a better ecosystem, you know, and we can call that community or whatever. And creating content's the best way to do that. And the other thing that I've learned is creating genuine content mm -hmm. is what matters because you can't fake it these mm -hmm. days. You really can't. There's enough content out there of people being real, being vulnerable, um, putting out smart ideas that if you try to craft a narrative of something, I think we're seeing it in politics these right. days. I think that's a lot of the reason we, and this is a whole other topic that I won't take us down, but just so much of the divide today is crafted narrative, crafted narrative. When people are sitting there going, will you just freaking be real? You yeah, know? yeah. Can we admit we have inflation and what are we going to do about it right, and right. the like? And so, yeah, that's going to be a fun journey for you. I know. I, I've had a blast. I mean, I love doing this. I mean, I love uh, hearing myself speak and looking up at the camera. <laughs> going, hey, that's me. Look at that. But uh, it'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I mean, you guys were one of the first ones. Digital wildcatters, I would say generally, uh, were one of the first ones to kind of put themselves out there. And then you joined the group and took it to a, to a new level. Took it to a that. much higher level, Colin. <laughs> Don't you forget it. <laughs> um, and so I find a lot of inspiration in that because putting yourself out there, I think, is pretty risky. Um, and it's scary. Like, I know sitting here now, like, it's very scary. But uh, I think most things scary are, are you know, are worth doing in the sense that it helps you grow from that experience. So, yeah, I'm excited. Well, and what I've found kind of getting to the, I never thought I'd relish being the old guy. <laughs> and, okay, this is crazy. Yesterday at the IPAA private capital conference, I was on the industry veterans table <laughs> or panel. And I'm just going, how did I become? You know, I'm looking over at uh, Jim Trumbull and Frank Lozinski going, no way near as old as these guys are, but um, I've actually kind of relished the role of being the old guy. It's fun to sit around here because Colin and Jake are full of piss and vinegar and they come in, we're going to do this. And I go, no, you're not. And they go, why not? And I go, I tried it in 07. It didn't work. I tried it again in 11. Didn't work. We forgot and tried it in 17 again. And here's <laughs> why it doesn't work. Um, but uh, just from the old guy 
what I would say is you're never going to regret things you tried and failed. You just don't. You sit around at my age and you go, ah, I should have tried that. Mm. I should have done that. And, you know, the big catastrophes you've had, and I've, I've had a handful of them, you look back and you laugh at. Yeah. You know, they're a learning experience. Yeah. So you're smart, you're talented, and if you figure out, you know, in a year of doing this, you didn't like it, Peter Pickering Hold will take you back. <laughs> Barclays will take you back. I don't know why you'd want to work for a European bank, but they'll take you <laughs> back. So, yeah, I, um, yeah, I hope the industry will take me back uh, if I cause... If I, so. Well, <laughs> private equity's not taking me back. No, I've already, no, yeah. <laughs> they've already made that plainly yeah. clear. So, uh, but trust me, you're, you're, you're a much better person than I am. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I yeah, I'm excited. I mean, so the, the monkey yep. thing. Yeah. Um, Explain the name and then tell, <laughs> tell me uh, how, or tell folks how they reach you. Yeah. So, uh, etechmonkey.com is the blog. And my email is deanna.zang at etechmonkey.com. And the reason why I chose a monkey, um, it's a couple of different things. It's like, uh, I, I like to say, and it's, it's a cliche thing at this point because a lot of people say it, but I'm a recovering investment banker. Like it's, you know. I, I always said reformed. reformed. When I was about, I'm, I'm a reformed investment banker. Yeah. It's, um. It's a process you go through and you learn a lot from it, but then you come out the other side and you're like, was I a human being kind of thing, mm. right? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so like uh, I think, um, I don't know, people kind of jokingly refer to bankers as monkeys sometimes. So mm. that's, that's part of it. And then also like I think, um, you know, you see a lot of tech companies using monkey too because uh, monkeys are playful and they're – uh, plover and they're also sort of chaotic, which is like what I aim to be in this sort of process. I want to be um, a little bit playful. I want to be hopefully clever, and I also want to be a little bit chaotic. So, um, and I think that'll be a challenge for me because I'm. You know, I mean, look at me. I'm not like a. I'm not a chaotic person. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I'm. I, you know, I'm. I'm an introvert and. I like to be thoughtful and I like to follow the rules, but I think this is a challenge for me to kind of not do that a little bit and see where that goes. Cool. Yeah. Well, appreciate you coming on. This has been a, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. You should aspire to do better things on a Friday afternoon, <laughs> but, uh, no, this was, this is great. Thank you. Good to see you.